The following is a Poppy Chulo Radio original program. The views and opinions expressed in the commentaries and or interviews in the following program are solely those of the individuals and are not views of Poppy Chulo Radio, its parent, affiliate, or subsidiary companies. Welcome to The Waking Dream, a PoppyChuloRadio.com original series, Poppy Chulo Radio, pop culture on demand. Today is Monday, August 29th, and I am your host, Vincent Hatcher. During this podcast, we'll be having an in-depth discussion on Netflix's The Sandman. Please welcome my co-host, Jeffrey Aruz. Wakey, wakey, everyone. Listeners, uh, Priscilla will not be joining us for this episode as she is caught in a nightmare. But... Let's jump into our discussion of Season 1, Episode 7, which was titled The Doll's House, and debuted August 5th, 2022, via Netflix. Here's what the official synopsis of the episode says. Lucienne comes to Morpheus with disturbing news. Rose Walker goes in search of family. Admirers of the Corinthians' work scheme to get his attention. So we begin the episode with a little bit of... Dream reading a book, a dream history book, with the name Rose Walker on the cover. The audience is then clued in what he is reading, and it shows a young girl, Rose, and her younger brother, Jed, packing up their things. Um, they are informed that brother and sister cannot go together, that they have to be separated. Initially, it seems like they're going to go together, but then mom comes in and says, unfortunately, Jed has to stay here. Rose, you'll be coming with me. And so we are introduced to the Walker family. And we leave them there, and we are off to the Palace of Desire. Desire is given a little bit more interaction in this episode. We actually get to meet Desire's twin sister, Despair, and they are discussing Dream, his escape, what he's up to. And we're given a little bit of insight into the fact that Desire has had their hands on the puppet strings of many debacles throughout Dream's life, because Desire wants Dream to learn a lesson. And that lesson pertains to Desire and Despair being just as if not more powerful than Dream's. And he has not learned it, and because of that, they have to continue with their plan. We also are given a little bit of a callback to an earlier episode. We find out that Desire was actually responsible for Nada's betrayal of Dream all those thousands of years ago. After taking credit for that, along with Sir Roderick Burgess, Desire reveals that there is a Dream Vortex, who is a woman. She will surely be the undoing of Dream. And so, hoping that that is the end of Dream, Desire is happy to see their plans starting to come to fruition. And then we are reintroduced to our friend from the beginning, Rose. And Rose is now a teenager. She's living in New Jersey in 2021. She's actually older. She looks like a teenager. Um, She is older. Her brother and her have been separated for years now because of the foster care system. Her mother has passed away. Rose wants to 
find her brother, but she has not had much luck because she does not have much money. She's in her apartment with her friends, Lita and Carl, and they're talking about the search, her desire to find him. She's upset about the lack of money, but her friend Lita points out there's this interview that her mother was going to do with a foundation in England who's willing to give her a per diem of 250 bucks if she goes. And seeing as she wants the money to help herself find her brother Jed, she, of course, decides to go. And let's stop there. We just unpacked a lot with the beginning. There's a lot going on. We've got some new characters. We met Despair, the Walker family. The Dream Vortex is coming into the conversation. Jeff, what were your thoughts on the opening and all these introductions? Once again, props to the team at the Sandman because, uh, you know, they keep on introducing these new characters almost every episode, and it's incredibly seamless. You know, it makes sense. You know, we get a great introduction to some really rich characters, and it all flows really, really well. I mean, if we really think about it, we've been introduced to so many characters since the start of the season. And uh, there are other shows where, you know, they have incredibly large casts and it all seems kind of chaotic. This worked really, really well. The bombs that were dropped by uh, Desire was fascinating. I mean, it all kind of, you know, at the end of the day was like, whoa, so you're behind everything. Like, everything that's happened, and it's all sort of a test. That was interesting, because I wasn't sure if the series was just going to take, like, a turn away from, you know, like, Dream and uh, the quest for all of his belongings and that sort of thing. And then then it was going to, like, turn into Desire's Wrath. But knowing now that it was all connected is incredibly fascinating to me. So so that was brilliant. And then being introduced to the Walker family, that was really interesting, you know, because I was like, where are we going with the story? And then all of a sudden this, you know, this teen, then young woman is connected to the dreaming. That was really cool too. Uh, the whole concept of a dream vortex and that sort of thing seems really interesting um you know just yeah I, I need more information but at this point in the episode i was like okay that's kind of fascinating i don't really know what that means but it sounds kind of cool and dangerous and uh and dreamy all at the same time i love the adjectives <laughs> i try you do you succeed <laughs> you know, I really enjoyed it as well. I mean, obviously going into this, I had some prior knowledge from the comics and all of that, but I absolutely love Desire and Despair. Like, they are such antitheses of each other, but then at the same time, when you think of it, they're actually not, because Desire usually leaves to, leads to Despair and vice versa. So having them personified as twins has always been such a fascinating concept for me, because it just speaks to, like, the inherent melancholy that comes with love, because sometimes love fails. Sometimes when you get what you desire, it doesn't work out and you end up in despair. So it's really fascinating to have them as twins. And I really enjoyed also just the way that it was revealed that like everything that has happened to dream in his life has basically been based on a foundation of sibling rivalry and a temper tantrum on desires part. <laughs> and desire mm -hmm. handles it 
so well. And I really, really enjoyed that part. Rose is cast perfectly, just like we've talked about with other members. Like, this girl is such a great actress, and she fits Rose really, really well. She plays the character well. And and I was here for the family as well. Like, I was invested in what was going on. You know, not even like 10 minutes into the episode, I was very sad for Jed and Rose to be separated and for Rose to grow up and, you know, never to have those formative years with her brother, the few that she missed, was really, really kind of heartbreaking. And you're right. They do a great job of getting us to invest in these characters who we are introduced to very quickly. And we may have seen them prior, but did not get to interact them kind of like a breadcrumb and this episode was another example of exactly wonderful writing in the sense of I felt for them. They felt real. They did not feel cheap or one dimensional. So I was really here for the journey. And speaking of journeys, Rose did get on that plane. She actually decided, yes, I'm going to go do this because this was really important to my mother and my mother would be the one doing this and I'm going to go in her stead. I'm also going to make some moolah to help out my brother. So Lita and Rose board the plane And they're having this conversation, and it's kind of exciting because it's a trip to London, or England at least. I mean, that would be exciting for me. I don't know about you, but I'd go if someone was paying for it. (laughs) Rose falls asleep. And as Rose is asleep, Lita is having a very casual but yet strangely intimate conversation to the passenger across the aisle from her. And they're talking about death and dying and the foundation and the, the gentleman is making comments and observations that seem to be coming from a caring place, but then they're kind of like, wait, this is like almost like he knows her. And lo and behold, Lita reveals that she has compassion for Rose because she lost her mother, and Lita lost her husband and feels empty without him. And it turns out that man across the aisle is her dead husband, Hector, and Lita has been taking her own foray into the dreaming and she's woken by a stewardess who asks her to put on their seatbelt because they are landing and Rose and Lena land in England are ready to begin their sojourn to the foundation. And meanwhile, in the beautiful and luscious ethereal land of the dreaming, Lucienne is walking around looking very official, like having a conversation with Abel about the census because she has been tasked with taking a census of all the citizens in the dream realm. I guess, you know, even the world of dreams, a magical place like that has bureaucracy. And during the conversation with Abel, Abel brings up some gossip about there being a dream vortex. So we're hearing this word a lot. But Lucienne dismisses it. She shrugs it off as gossip. That's not true. It's just hearsay. She returns back to Lord Morpheus, and she is reporting to him about the various entities who were there, and we find out that there are some that are missing. And we are introduced to the concept of the three arcana. These are the three nightmares, or dream, beings that are missing. The first of them being Galt, a shapeshifter. The second being our antagonist that we love to hate, the Corinthian. And lastly, Fiddler's Green, an entity that kind of puzzles Dream as to why he would have left because he was a very, very loyal being to Dream, and his departure is alarming. Lucian also reluctantly shares the gossip about the Dream Vortex to the King of Dreams, and he's very much aware of it already because apparently he has finger on the pulse, and he knows. And he welcomes the presence of the Dream Vortex with a comfy little smile on his face, and he clarifies that the Dream Vortex is a she- And she could actually help him find the three problems that are missing since 
Vortexes do what Vortexes do best. They draw things closer to them. And so Dream is hoping that Rose, being a Dream Vortex, will lure Galt, the Corinthian, and Fiddler's Green to her, and then he can swoop in and do what he needs to do to bring them back or discipline them. Matthew, who has been present and overseeing the conversation, volunteers himself to take a keep an eye on Rose in the waking world. And Dream, since he knows he's going to see everything that Matthew sees, agrees. Matthew is sent out into the world. We get a lovely vision of him flying through a ceiling that's almost like the Sistine Chapel. Next thing, he's in the real world. And in the real world, Rose has arrived at the Foundation, which is a manor house in England that almost brings to mind Roderick's house a little bit. It's another mansion in the country lands, and there's a little bit of fog. It's very English. They meet a lawyer who is very, very stiff and stoic, and he takes them and introduces them to the head of this foundation, an elderly woman who is very, very, very pleased to meet Rose. She is very positive, very happy, and she reveals that she is the head of the foundation. The foundation does not actually fully exist. It was a little bit of a ploy to get Rose over the ocean, and this is when we are introduced to Unity Kincaid, who, listeners, if you remember, when Dream was kidnapped and the sleeping sickness started, Unity Kincaid was briefly introduced as a young girl whose father tried to wake her up for her birthday, and she never woke up. Unity woke up earlier that year when Dream was released from his imprisonment and the sleeping sickness went away, and she came to find out that she had actually had a baby, just like she had in her dreams all those years that she was asleep. She was seduced or fell in love with a man with golden eyes and had a baby. She took over her father's business. She had a lovely, thriving life. And then she woke up old and gray in a home and found out that she'd gotten prego and the baby had been sent away out into the world. And as she's revealing this, she reveals that she is actually... Rose's great-grandmother. Cue the soap opera music. Jeff, were you blown away? Yes and no. Um, And this is coming from someone who who has, like, no knowledge about this property um, at all. But once she started talking about how she had a mysterious baby, like, I was like, okay, there has to be a connection here. And so when she said it, I was surprised, but it it didn't, like, knock me down to the ground because I I was kind of anticipating a little bit of a twist. You know, not a a bad twist, but, like, a happy twist for Rose. And I liked the twist. Uh, I'm very intrigued by who this man with eyes is, and I hope we get an answer to that at some point. Oh, we already have. We have? Who's someone that we've met that has golden eyes? Is it Dream? Think about it. No, Wait, but you're in the right realm. Desire. Oh. Yep. You are right. Oh, no. Don't tell me now Desire is behind this shit, too. <laughs> Desire is everywhere. It's kind of like Visa. Yes. Desire is everywhere. Okay. All right. All right. I like it. I, see, I didn't even think to put that two and two together. But now we're putting L two and twos together, so why not? Right? <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Go with the flow with that. Um. Okay. So that's fascinating. 
Um, but yeah, and I was so glad we got to see her again. I mean, you sort of gave us a little bit of a tease when, you know, we talked about her way back in the mm-hmm. first episode. You said that we would be talking more about her. So I'm glad she's back. I love how she connected with Rose. And I mean, this whole this this whole thing was just really, really incredibly fascinating the machinations in the dream realm in the dreaming was really interesting as well like as you said you know there's a bureaucracy there and that sort of thing um i was waiting for like the census to like because he never mentioned wait who was that one was that kane or abel i believe it was abel it was able because kane wasn't mentioned but then he also mentioned that there was something creepy in the basement and i was like okay yeah there's that um, so all of that was incredibly fascinating and, uh, yeah, yeah. Just everything in the dreaming was fascinating. I'll, I'll just leave it at that because we're going to get into more of that momentarily. Mm-hmm. But as far as stuff in the UK, in England, uh, everything there was just, was awesome to be quite honest. Like I, I love that this young woman who doesn't have any family. I mean, she's got a brother out there that she has no idea where he is, and she's lost her mother, but all of a sudden, you know, she's creating this sort of makeshift family, you know, with with uh, with Lita and now with Unity Kincaid. Yes. You know, we're really... I, I've been really excited for the latter half of this series because as we kind of talked about, in the past, there's so many threads, so many stories that create this beautiful tapestry that we're, we're in awe of. And it could have gone so wrong. It could have gone so badly. You know, we've watched shows, especially on Netflix, we've watched what happened, like you touched on earlier, with larger cast members, a lot of plot. And sometimes plots just go nowhere. We never get that payoff. We never get that, you know, there's an Easter egg or there's a reference of foreshadowing that never pays off. But so far... Every single Easter foreshadowing, every little piece of hinting has kind of started to come full circle in these latter episodes. And it's really fascinating to watch it happen because it's all starting to finally, for me at least, come together as a cohesive story. Like getting the news about Desire being behind everything, Unity and Rose, and we're back in England. And things are just, they're, they're unfurling at this awesome rate that continues to make you hungry to watch more. And right. I absolutely love it. <laughs> yes. I didn't mention Hector, but the Hector situation threw me for a loop because I just thought he was some rando on the plane in business class chatting right? with Lita. And then once we found out that there is a connection there, and in essence, she's she has a sort of, um, I guess, is it the name of our show? Is it like a waking dream? Is it a, she has a, a dream yeah. in which she's cognizant that she's dreaming. Like that was interesting because yeah. it made her even more fascinating. Cause I'm like, how long has this been happening? Uh, you know, is this another desire machination that's going on? Is this that she has some sort of power within her like i it made me like incredibly fascinating fascinated about her as a character so i need answers there as well yes and i i like that they do this because otherwise she would kind of be what like unfortunately carl is which is kind of like a throwaway character um 
it gives her substance and it gives an emotional impact to her story. And it really, for me, it helped me understand the closeness that she has with Rose. And there's been this really big emphasis on relationships in the show. And so I really am glad that we get this. Um, I honestly, at first, I was like, Hector, this guy's kind of creepy. Like, before they revealed that it was her husband, I was like, this conversation is getting way too intimate. <laughs> like, these details and these questions, <laughs> like... And it didn't even get that in detail, but it was just the vibe. There was, like, this weird vibe. And then the moment it's like, this is her husband, I was like, oh, yeah. It made sense, because I had forgotten about this. I can't remember if this was in the comics. Um, so it, it was a nice little surprise, and it did round out her character. Uh, as for Rose... She has a great time with Unity reconnecting. She finds out that Unity has tons of money, and that's going to come into play in a little bit. But money aside, as you mentioned, she has family. And Rose immediately just wraps her arms around Unity, accepting her great-grandmother, and they spend some time catching up, after which Rose is kind of walking around, and she's hearing voices. And she's drawn to a closet. And I don't know what you expect to find in a broom closet, but... I mean, apparently it's the fates. Because they just like to hang out and appear in broom closets. But, uh... I've heard that our they triple... do. <laughs> our triple friends show up. And not in just blinking capacity. They are full-on manifested in front of Miss Walker... And the fates are doing what the fates do best. They are talking in riddles. They are encouraging her to ask a question without coming out and saying it. And they're trying to hint to her. Rose, unfortunately, drops the ball and does not ask the right question. And does not get to find out what they were trying to talk to her about. But they do tell her that had she asked the right question, she could have learned about the Corinthian, how to find Jed, or about Morpheus the Dream King. They laugh a little bit, and they're kind of, like, borderline mocking. And then Lita turns the closet lights on and snaps Rose out of her trance. And they all go back to Unity and sit down for a meal. Unity learns that Lita and Hector were basically family to Rose and Miranda. And they took Rose in and kind of adopted her unofficially after Miranda, her mother, passed. And Unity doesn't need to hear any more. She immediately identifies them as part of her family as well, and awkwardly offers to send Hector a plane ticket for Lita for, like, the fifth time in the episode, having to say, sorry, my husband is dead. <laughs> Poor lady. Right. <laughs> and uh, either way, Unity is still happy to have Rose and Lita in her life now, and offers with her a massive fortune that her family obtained by being the owners and runners of Kincaid Sugar, to help find Jed. She's going to fund it. She's going to pay Rose a salary, send Rose wherever she needs to go so that she gets to meet her great-grandson. And so she offers to set all of this up. But before Rose goes away, Unity offers a gift of a family heirloom called an amulet, which Rose had had a dream about earlier in the episode, the word amulet. And that was actually something that now has come full circle. And her dream about that came true. Back in the dreaming realm, Lucian is informing Matthew of all, is being informed by Matthew of all the important details about Rose Walker. And they're having a conversation about it. And the janitor, Merv Pumpkinhead, walks up and asks about the dream vortex, something Lucian emphasizes dream has under control. 
Merv and Lucian tell Matthew to keep an eye out for anything traumatic that might trigger Rose fulfilling her vortex abilities. What did we think of Merv? What did we think of the fates and the annulets of it all? Merv was spectacular. We had briefly seen him for a teeny, 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 teeny tiny second way back when the dreaming was flourishing in the first episode. So I'm glad, you know, they gave him something to do in this episode. Just a fantastic uh, CGI creation. Uh, Yeah, incredibly interesting yeah loved him loved him giving me very much like jack skellington you know his like second cousin thrice removed type of situation but i liked it enjoyed him the pumpkin king (laughs) yes um okay uh let's see what else um so the fates that was surprising the fact that they showed up not in like fady garb, but looking incredibly human-ish. That was interesting. Uh, the fact that they showed up and the poor girl has no idea who they are, nor what they're about, nor what they can do, and they expect her to like ask the proper questions. Like shame on you, Fates, because that was incredibly right? dumb of the three of you. Because what is she supposed to do? Like, three mysterious women, you know, she opens the door, and y'all are talking like nut jobs, and she's supposed to figure out <laughs> that she's supposed to ask the right questions to, uh, you know, get the answers that she doesn't know she needs. And she didn't even summon them. Exactly. So that's interesting. I wonder why they showed up. Yes. So, is that a desire yeah. machination? No, so the fates are very fickle beings who they'll get involved a little bit for the game and the fun of it all or because they feel like they need to, but they are bound by laws, like these metaphysical laws. Like they can't just outright tell someone an answer. They have to be asked a question, and so that's why they did that. No, I understand that, but the girl doesn't know that. Yeah, so it's interesting that like – they just showed up on their own without that. That was my, my curiosity was like, she didn't perform a great sacrifice or gift of power. So the only thing I can think of is because she is what she is, they showed up. But if they chose to do that, then I agree. I think she shouldn't have been bound by the rules of the question. Yeah. Because she has no idea there are rules. Like she's just trying to live her life in Find the UK real women with in the this, yeah, with this new family that she's found and that whole type of situation. So she has no idea what she's supposed to do. And of course she didn't. She, I mean, she asked questions, but they weren't the right questions, clearly. So, so that was, it was strange. Because I was like, I have no idea what's going on here. Or, I mean, or why they're there. Or why they expect her to know anything. And she clearly didn't. Now, my hope is that she remembers, you know, what they said at the end. So if things start sort of popping up, she could be like, oh, okay. And now I can make sort of like the connections. Based mm-hmm. off of the fact that it was such a small moment, maybe she won't. But uh, I did like when uh, Lita showed up and she just turned on the lights and it was like a closet. Like it wasn't that sort doing? of gorgeous room ethereal looking room that she had entered yes 
So the fates can not only just appear, they can manipulate time and space to have this like awesome room appear there with them. And right. what was interesting to me too, is that she only got the one question as opposed to three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it seems like they play around the rules a little bit, but you know, they're these weird metaphysical personifications of things and they are fickle and do what they want. And, but I, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was awesome seeing them show back up again. I really enjoyed how, like, even though it didn't help Rose, I just enjoyed them being like, oh, well, had you asked us the right question? Ah, ah, ah. Right. <laughs> but it was nice to see them fully present, even because I think this was the clearest view that we got of them the entire series. Because even when Dream summoned them, which was the prior time where we had more of a manifestation. We got them in like flashes with dark lightning and light, but we got to see them full on in light time in this time. And I really enjoyed that, but I agree. It was nice to have Lita just kind of walk in and be like, girl, what are you doing in this closet? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, but you know, so now that she knows she can follow some leads to find her brother and she has the funding for her trip. Rose travels back across the pond and she goes back to Cape Kennedy in Florida, which is where she and her brother spent the beginning of their life. And they arrive at this, oh my God, gorgeous bed and breakfast uh, that I just, oh my gosh, it's, I want to move there. <laughs> and we meet Hal Carter, played by uh, John Cameron Mitchell, who is the owner and runner of the establishment. And he lets them know that he has already shared Rose and Lita's stories with the various housemates that they'll be living with because there are no secrets in the bed and breakfast. And walking in, we get to meet two of the other tenants, Ken and Barbie, who are very self-aware, terrible, we know. And then we meet Chantel and Zelda, the... Serving up some Lydia from Beetlejuice vibes, owners of the largest stuffed spider collection. One does not talk, but whispers in the other's ear when the other one talks for them. And we introduce this little friendly family that lives in this house together. And Rose and Lita are a little bit taken aback by the openness at first, but they quickly become comfortable. And they decide to go to the foster agency that handled Jed's adoption out. And unfortunately, the social worker is not willing to break the law and give out information about a placement for an adopted child and she expresses that she understands the concern but the child is obviously being taken care of and she cannot give the information our girl rose loses her temper and is like could you just be a fucking human for five minutes and doesn't regret in the moment lashing out lita has to kind of play clean up a little bit and they get a little bit of a kernel I get a little, little bit of a, a thing to make Rose feel better that doesn't break the law. And the social worker, Miss Rubio, says, your brother was adopted by some of your father's friends. And that should make you feel better that he's got people who care about him. Now, I feel like Rose forgot about her father in this minute by taking comfort in this because her father was an asshole from what we were told. I would not necessarily feel comfy that his friends had taken his brother in, but, you know. So they strike out there, and Rose decides, you know what, let's go with my housemates to this thing that they mentioned, and it's a performance by Hal in full drag, doing everything's coming up roses, and it's a 
gorgeous show. It's a lot of fun. But Rose needs to go outside and try to talk to Unity. And while she's out there, she is accosted. Well, they attempt to accost her by two notorious gentlemen who want her money and her phone and her things. But the interaction is interrupted by a very dapper Stephen Fry who is very politely offering assistance and instructs the men to leave her alone. But we very quickly learn that Rose, she does not necessarily need the help because she makes short business of the thugs and gives them a little bit of a beatdown and uh, thanks the gentleman for the help. And at that moment, they realize who each other is to the other. Gilbert is who the end man introduces himself as, is the reclusive writer who lives in the attic of the bed and breakfast. And he realizes that Rose is one of the new tenants. And he offers to escort her back home to make sure that she gets there safely. As they're walking away, Matthew is shown to have witnessed this interaction, and he reports back to Lucienne and lets Lucienne know that Rose is looking for her brother. And at that point, Lucienne reveals, that's interesting because I can't find his brother. And we realize that Jed is missing from the dreaming and the waking world, which is very interesting. And Rose goes back to the bed and breakfast and falls asleep. And in her sleep, she walks through a door. And at the same time, Lucienne has decided to take the report about Jed and Rose Walker to Dream. And Rose is walking through the door and she's hearing a conversation. We see Dream and Lucienne having this convo. And Dream is suggesting that perhaps Galt, one of his missing nightmares, was the one to take Jed. And talks about the Vortex and Rose. And that's when Rose walks into the throne room and says, I'm Rose Walker. Hey, what's up? And Rose has found her way by Vortexing into the Realm of Dreams, directly into Dream's throne room. They begin to have a conversation about the missing nightmares, about her brother, and he thinks they can work together to find him. And now we have the beginning of a new relationship. Rose and Dream will be working together to try and find Jed. Speaking of Jed, who we have not seen since really the beginning of the episode, we find him wandering in a misty road slash forest, He's obviously running away from something, and a car pulls up, and a woman gets out, and he calls out to her as Aunt Clarice, and she's like, "Get it, you know, we got to get back, and he says, no, let's run away together, let's get away from him, and you can tell Clarice is a little bit, like, beat down and submissive, but she's like, okay, okay, let's do it, just as a car pulls up, and Uncle Barnaby gets out with a shotgun, and tells them we are going back. Jed, get in the trunk. And Jed meekly gets in the trunk. And they drive away. And we will be addressing the other storyline that happened in the episode with the Corinthian here in a moment. But this is the end of the story for Rose, her friends, and Dream for this episode. And we had a lot going on. Jeff, what did you think of the house? The the, the housemates and Dreaming and Mr. Gilbert? You know what? Okay, once again, going into a whole bunch of people, I was very confused at this point in time, just because, like, we were thrust into a community so fast. Like, they were all introduced really well, and everyone has, 
sort of like their strange eccentricities. But I was like, okay, this is interesting. And in my mind, I'm now that I know about the desire of it all, like I'm thinking nefarious stuff in my mind. And I'm like, <laughs> is this a nefarious situation? But then when they kind of prove themselves to be harmless, kind, supportive people, I was like, okay, they're just harmless, kind, and supportive, eccentric people. And so they were all fascinating. I mean, I can imagine them all on the pages of a comic book in a graphic novel just because they were so vividly mm -hmm. created in this live-action series. So all of them were incredibly fascinating. I love that once again uh, we have Rose creating a kind of makeshift family. It also leads me into the question of like the dream vortex of it all, since she is one. And uh, they already said, I think it was Lucienne, and maybe even Dream had said that, oh, she's a vortex, you know, the dreams and stuff will be attracted to her and, and that sort of thing. I wonder if it also works with humans, because she does seem to be creating mm -hmm. makeshift families all over the place now. So I wonder yeah. if some of her dream vortexy powers also influences humans. Maybe. I don't know. Put a little button into that. Um, the two gentlemen in the alley, I thought they were going to end up being like nightmare type dream people, but they were just muggers slash murderers, yep. maybe. I so, thought the same thing. Yeah. So so that was like a little bit of a, um, like it was a red flag, but then it was a false alarm. Although I'm glad that she's okay. So, she, and, and clearly she can defend herself, which is a good thing as well. The um, sort of machinations in the dreaming, it's interesting because Matthew in this episode basically said, I'm much more aligned with you, Lucien, than I am with Dream. So I wonder how that could affect things in the future. So I, I noticed that and I was like, okay, I'll put a pin in that because that's kind of fascinating. The whole yeah. situation with poor young Jed, I was like, oh God, this is not a storyline that I'm going to want to watch. Just because I knew it was going to be probably horrific for the kid just based mm -hmm. off of you know, th that, I don't know how long it was, minute and a half that we saw of him at the end. I was like, oh, like, I, I don't, like, I don't want the kid to be abused. Like, I, like, I don't want to see any of that. And once the man, uh, uncle, popped out and then was like, get in the trunk, I was like, okay, we're headed in that direction. And I was like, I just hope we, like, see minimal of the damage because clearly this kid is traumatized already. Yeah. You know, we, we sometimes make the joke about wanting to call some various version of CPS, but this definitely in the moment was like, God, I wish I could. <laughs> like, this poor child. And and we really do get to kind of see, like, I liked that they presented the foster agency in that system accurately, and it wasn't kind of glossed over as, like, you know, uh, a very optimistic representation. A lot of these agencies are state-run, you know, when they do op adoptions. And even if they're not, they're still run down, underfunded. You know, like in this instance, it seems to be run by just this one lady. And, 
you know, a lot of times they have so much of a caseload that they can't do as in-depth of like an investigation or vet process. And unfortunately, poor Jed was a victim of this. And he was another example for me of like what we've constantly mentioned. You know, I immediately was like, I feel for this kid. Like I'm invested in his story. And even though I knew where it was going, you know, I still like I liked him. Like I liked him immediately. Just the fact that he was like trying to convince the obviously battered or, you know, mousy wife of the uncle to leave. And he and he had the gall to do that despite facing potential adversity, which, of course, happened a moment later. Um yeah, Jed is interesting, and it, and I love the parallels of like Rose's search for him, and then us getting just this little tidbit at the end of where he is now to kind of lead us into whatever happens next time, because it it was a really good payoff because we we're searching along with Rose the entire episode, and we get this little bit, and we clearly know it's not going well for him, and it just makes us be that much more supportive in wanting Rose to find him. Oh, definitely. All right, so we had another search going on during the episode, and uh, we met some interesting characters in a diner. So we, we got another diner, but in, in this one, there's no John D, no Ruby, no, no orgies and self-harm. But there is some implications of wait, harming having been done. wasn't that the exact same diner, though? I don't think so, because I don't remember it being called Mike's. Oh, okay, okay. So, uh, because the, but the set, I'm going to assume they reused similar. the set. Yeah, I think they did. Yeah. I think it does look very similar. Like, I, I, I have to watch the episode a second time, and I'm going to, now that I, when I do that, I'm going to look closer. Yeah. Uh, but in Huntsville, Alabama, we are in a diner with three members of a planning committee at what initially seems to be a rather mundane clerical meeting about planning a replacement guest of honor for their event since the headliner dropped out. Some names are thrown around, and one of them is Candyman. And then they all agree that only the Corinthian is their best bet for a good event. This is when we realize, as an audience, that we are dealing with three serial killers who are putting together Serial Con. That's just the name I came up with for it. That's not the real name. I like it. Uh, they want to get a gathering of like-minded collectors, as they call themselves, to get together, celebrate their practice and their craft. Unfortunately, their headliner dropped out or is unavailable, and they've been asking the Corinthian every year that they've done this, and he's always refused. And one of them, the good doctor, the female in the three, suggests that we really just need to get his attention. And what better way than to get his attention, since he's ignored us, is to copycat his method so that he's like, oh, well, I did not do that. Somebody else's. Now I'm going to go find them. But Nimrod, one of the other gentlemen, points out that this goes against their killer code. They do not reproduce each other's modus operandi, and that would be in poor taste. The good doctor demurs or defers and says demurely, all right, well, can't say I didn't try. Excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom. And when she returns from the bathroom... She lets Nimrod and the other gentleman, who was named Funland, know that she decided to take some initiative, and she went ahead with her plan, murdered their waiter, and she just kind of uh, slightly inconspicuously, but not so much that if anyone else in the diner was looking, they wouldn't have seen it, she stole the eyes of her victim just like the Corinthian does. Jeff, what did you think was going on here before it got to where it was going? I was incredibly confused. <laughs> 
just because <laughs> I was like, are they nightmares? Are they dreams? And then once I figured out, no, they're just serial killers, and the Corinthian has become, you know, over the hundred or so years that he's been out and about because Dream was captured by Burgess, he's become a notorious serial killer. But it's not just that he's a notorious serial killer. It seems to be like a serial killer type of thing that gets passed on from generation yeah. to generation. Uh, so that was fascinating. Um, I was like, okay, these people are really wanting a keynote speaker. Like, no matter what. Uh, yeah, it's like, you know, world be damned. We need our keynote speaker. Right. Yeah, it, it was, it's very disarming. And it was even so in the comics because they're introduced in a very similar fashion. And you're just kind of like, what the hell? Why am I being privy to this boring administrator? Oh, oh. <laughs> and you have that moment. But yeah, no, they were an interesting little motley crew. And the actors that they picked, for the men at least, were like very much like they screamed to me as like, okay, yeah, you guys are like deviants. Like you would definitely like be someone who would put someone on the back of a milk carton. <laughs> right and the girl was definitely like serving up like i'm a black widow <laughs> so speaking of the corinthian our our little crew is in alabama talking about them one thing that was talked about is as we've said the vortex draws people to it and dream had hoped that she would draw galt fiddler's green the corinthian towards her well sure enough he is on the smell the trail he's on the hunt he knows she exists he wants to get to her before dream does the corinthian wants to utilize rose to take down dream once and for all so the corinthian does what he does so well and shows up at rose's apartment and carl had very kindly offered to rose earlier to house it he knocks on the door and carl opens and they have a little conversation in which the corinthian reveals I wanted to give Rose a job. Is she here? And Carl's like, no, she's traveling, but I can get a message to her. And the Corinthian just throws on the charm. There's definitely some eroticism going on between them. And there's like hints and some tension. And Carl's like, well, she'll be back in a week, but you're welcome to wait. Most transparent pickup line I have ever seen. And sure enough, the Corinthian walks in, they have a wooey session, a wooing moment, and they toss around on Rose's bed. And after the hookup, the Corinthian is kind of wandering around the apartment and talking to Carl. Carl's curious about the job. But in this moment, the Corinthian, there's a picture near him. And it's a picture of somebody that we met before. Jeff, did you catch it? Yes. Yes. From the diner. Yeah, our good friend Judy. And in that moment, we realized that we met Rose very briefly back in the diner episode 24-7 because Rose was the friend that Judy video called on her phone, and they were talking about Donna. Mm -hmm. So yet another one of those breadcrumbs that introduced us to a character that would mean more later. And so Carl's asking about the job, the Corinthians, you know, loosely, not very committedly explaining things. 
very vaguely, I want her to work for me so they can put my old boss out of business. And while they're having this conversation, Corinthian gets that notification from our friends in Alabama, having copycatted him. And sure enough, he says, you know what? I got to go to work. Something's come up. I got to go. But Carl, in his bikini briefs, is very convincing and encourages the Corinthian for one last fling before he goes. He tries to convince the Corinthian to do it without the dark sunglasses, because, of course, even when he's humping, the glasses don't come off. But the Corinthian is having none of it. But he is having another session of fun time. They lay down again, do their thing. And then later, we are back at the Killers in their little diner. They're meeting again, having killed people and stolen their eyes. Even Nimrod, who said it went against the code, said that he actually really enjoyed it. And they're talking about whether or not this might catch the Corinthians' attention. But sure enough, he shows up, threatens to kill them all. But gives them a chance to say, give me a reason why I shouldn't kill you right now. And that is when they extend their invitation to officially be their keynote speaker. And the Corinthian mulls it over and realizes this is such a great way to enact his plan to get to Rose and have her with him. And he mentions, sure, as long as I can have a plus one. Are we worried for Rose? We should be. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have no idea. Yeah. I, I don't know what's going on with this serial killer con. But, yeah, I feel like anything with the Corinthian being involved, we should be worried. Can I just say, I did not see dreams slash nightmares having sort of carnal urges being a thing. Like, I, right. like in my mind, like, they would be sort of, like, almost asexual. Kind of like how Dream yeah. sort of is. Because Dream doesn't really seem to be a very sexual person. I don't even think he has anatomy down there. Like, the way that they've right. kind of done it in the past. Like, there was that one scene where he was walking towards Roderick or whatever in the light. And we very clearly saw what where that area would be. And it looked like a Ken doll. Well, there's that. <laughs> Sorry, Dream. You have no anatomy down there, but it's it's right. fine. You've survived. You can dream about it. Exactly. Yes, if if he dreams it, well, let me stop. But anyway. <laughs> he will come? Yes. But anyway, so the fact that the Corinthian has sex was fascinating to me. You know, the fact that, you know, he's even interested that he, uh, you know, it, clearly it was not initiated, but Corinthian didn't say no, and even wanted more. Like, all of that was fascinating to me, because that I did not see coming, because it just, it, it, in my mind, it just didn't make any sense that these dream-slash-nightmare beings would even be interested in sex. So that was interesting. I still need an explanation about the glasses. Like, my assumption is he doesn't have eyes. But it's like, I want to see it. So I, I need it? his glasses to come off because I want to see what's there. Whether it's just eye sockets or, like, really demonic eyes. Once again, my assumption is he doesn't have eyes. I also assume that he ripped the eyes out because he put the eyes in. But we've never really right. seen that, and the, so I don't know exactly what he does, but I need answers to the Corinthian. 
I can't remember if I'm right, but I think in one of the earlier episodes, in the moment where he realizes Dream broke out, I think we saw what they did with him in this in this version, and he had white eyes, like white eyeballs that with no pupils or anything. Okay. Now in the comics, he has teeth for eyes. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay, <laughs> I might have to go back and just like. Search I might for that be wrong, scene. but I feel like because I think I commented on it. Um, I feel like we did see them. I could entirely be wrong, and it may have been a victim, but I think they did show him with, like, white eye sockets or white eyeballs with no pupil and iris. Um, and and they don't show us if he put the eyeballs in or if he ate them. Yeah. He, yeah, so it's like, I I want to see how they're doing it, too, because I vaguely remember in the comics, I know he had, like, teeth in his eye sockets. Um, but, yeah, I, I he's he's definitely an interesting character, and, like, I enjoy how they're presenting him. Um, before we head to the MVP, though, anything that I missed? No, I believe you covered it all. Sweet. I do have one extra question, because we've seen, we've seen, like, what, four to six villains so far in this show? Who's been your favorite so far? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think for me... As far as fascinating, uh, John D was fascinating. Nice. As far as, like, I want to see their comeuppance, the Corinthian. Yes. <laughs> they did a great job making everybody, I think, want to see the Corinthian get what's coming to him. <laughs> yeah, he's very smarmy. <laughs> he's that, like, southern gentleman who just has a slimy underbelly. And, yes. and the guy plays it so well. I think for me... The most fascinating one for me would probably, yeah, I, I think for me, it, since you had chosen John D and I'm gonna pour, I'm gonna put myself in like MVP rules, I would go with Ethel, even though oh, Ethel nice. was not te- technically like a full on villain and she kind of redeemed herself. I think just her journey for me was very fascinating because she obviously started out and like was a very selfish person, but she went on this journey and like, even to the very end, like she was very tough as nails and it was a fascinating story that I would have loved to know more about her life and how she got where she was. Um, but the best overall villain for me and the one that I also want to see the comeuppance is desire. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. Because there's so much there. There's so much to unpack between them and Dream. And now, you know, Despair is involved as well. Like, I want more to be revealed about their their enmity. And I want to see if Dream really understands that this has all been desire. Or if he's oblivious. You know what I mean? Like, is he aware that this game is being played fully? And to, to what extent? Or is he kind of ignorant and it's going to be a surprise? Nice. And what happens when he finds out? Yeah. But now it is time for the MVP, the most valuable player. State which character impressed you throughout this episode and why. Once they have been chosen, that character cannot be selected again. So, Jeff, choose wisely. Who was your MVP? Oh, okay, good. I'm excited. I'll be honest. There are many people that can be chosen as MVP in this episode because there were so many characters, and I will say this, they were all incredibly interesting and fascinating by themselves. But I got to give it to Rose Walker. 
I absolutely loved her from the very beginning. She's a character that immediately, once I saw her, I'm like, okay, I'm rooting for you. And to check on her IMDb and to see that this is her first thing ever. Mm-hmm. Props to her, because they did a good job casting her. Uh, I'm sure as, as a newbie, they put her through the ringer to make sure she was you know, the best of the best of the best. And she was the best. I absolutely enjoyed her from beginning to end. Nice. Excellent choice. Yeah, Rose Walker is a character that, you know, that you always hear about, like, fan backlash when casting is not ideal. This is a character that could have gone very badly, but they chose so well that, like, I would never hear any ill sayings about her performance. For a first time, I agree. She did a phenomenal job. Ah, see, I knew you were going to choose Rose. This is why I came with a list of backups. (laughs) But my backups is a contest in my mind. I'm going to decide right now. (laughs) You know, I'm going to give it to the Corinthian. I, I don't like him. But the fact that I don't like him proves how valuable he is to the plot and the story. He has this overreaching agenda that, like Desire, he's got his hand in all these various cookie jars. And his plan, while it may not have the scale of millions and thousands of years like Desire's does, he is playing a long game. And we have been given enough throughout the entire series, and we're given more in this episode. We get to see him working a bit more towards what he wants. And I actually fear for Dream, because even though he's a creation of Dream, he's clearly becoming more powerful by being out in the real world and doing what he does. And it does make me worry a little bit for our boy, you know, our spiky-haired little goth boy, King of Dreams. And because of the feelings that like he instilled in me, like I definitely have a little bit of concern. And he is a very, very important player that obviously by the end of the season, there's going to be a confrontation. And I find myself on the edge of my seat wanting to see what takes place. And I actually really find myself wanting to find out like, okay, we've seen him kind of kill here and there. And he's very threatening, like, but we haven't, I feel, fully seen the Corinthian in full-blown action yet. And I really want to see that happen as bad as it's probably going to be. All right. So now it is time to rate the episode. How would you rate the episode on a scale of 1 to 10 Dream Helms? You are allowed to utilize the point system if you found the episode exceptional. Deserving of more than a 10, you may grant the coveted Golden Dream Helm. Are we taking a trip to Costco to pick up more Dream Helms of the Golden Variety, Jeff? What are we doing? Oh, gosh. I'm torn just because I feel like I've been giving so many Golden Dream Helms. It was a really good episode, and I want to give it a Golden Dream Helm. But I think I'm going to settle with a 10, which sounds ridiculous because a 10 is still (laughs) fantastic. Uh, But, yeah, I think a 10 makes the most sense. Another really great episode, incredibly fascinating, captivating from beginning to end. I, I was fascinated by it all, and everybody did a great job acting-wise. I am a stand for this series, and this episode did not disappoint, so a solid 10 for me. Excellent, and I am about to make you feel better about not doing Golden Dream Helm as well. <laughs> I feel the same. I, I feel that, and it's not only because we've been very, gener- especially myself, been very generous with you know the Golden Dream Helms, but this was definitely kind of a 
I don't want to use the word filler episode because it was great from start to finish, but I will say that it's definitely a very foundational episode. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, it could have gone poorly very quickly. It could have gone badly. Thankfully it didn't, but we were presented with a lot. We did not get the usual payoff that we get with these salmon episodes where it's kind of like encapsulated what's happening. This was very much the beginning of an arc and, you know, Rose's story, her finding Jed. And so it was great. Like I enjoyed it. I was really happy with it, but at the same time, it, it, it didn't hit me as like, Oh my God, this is a golden because we're missing the payoff. We're missing the climax. And so because of that, I don't feel fair giving it a golden. I do feel that it's fair to give it a 10 because it was great for what it was meant to be. But I can't wait to find out what's going to happen next. Speaking of, please, please, please join us next time for a brand new installment of The Waking Dream. Here is our announcer to remind you on how you can interact with us in your dreams or in the real world, whatever you prefer. Follow Poppy Chula Radio on social media. We are on Facebook. Instagram, Twitter, at Poppy Chula Radio. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or concerns? Email us via contact at poppychularadio.com. Are you interested in joining the Poppy Chula Radio team as an on-air personality? Email talent at poppychularadio.com. Binge listen to your favorite Poppy Chula Radio programs by visiting poppychularadio.com slash archives. You can also download tonight's broadcast and the rest of the series through Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Just search for The Waking Dream and subscribe. Thanks, announcer. Jeff, please wish our listeners a good night. Sweet dreams, listeners. Have a wonderful night. Everyone, thank you for tuning in. Subscribe to The Waking Dream via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also download the entire series to listen to all of it, all of us, at poppychularadio.com backslash archives. Good night and pleasant dreams. May the Corinthian not find you.